Welcome to the Political Philosophy Podcast. I'm Toby Buckle. I'm recording this on a rainy Sunday afternoon, so you might well be able to hear the rain smattering on my windows for the intro and outro. Apologies for that. This week's episode is the second part of my conversation with Professor Jacob T. Levy. You can hear the first part and the my introduction to him in last week's episode, Justice in a Fallen World, so feel free to check that out. If you're just joining us halfway through, I think this conversation more or less stands up on its own merits, and I titled it Politics Without Guarantees, the idea being we seek, the premise, I guess, of the conversation being that we seek guarantees from our political and moral systems that those systems really aren't capable of giving us. We want the guarantee on a practical level that our preferred vision of the world will come about, and we want the guarantee on the moral level that systematic moral philosophy will lead us back to the starting point that we found intuitive. This conversation takes as its starting point the idea that those guarantees aren't possible, and investigates, you know, what an alternate vision of the world looks like. I'll make one quick note before we get started, which is just that certain parts of this conversation should be interpreted as off-the-cuff spitballing. I don't think either of us would want to be held to absolutely everything we're saying in this conversation as, like, our official position. I dragged Professor Levy down some rabbit holes in this one, which he graciously agreed to explore with me, but are not particularly related to um, his work, either published or upcoming. So take that for what it is. I thought it was a really, really interesting conversation, so I wanted to bring it to you even if it was a little bit less structured than the last one, and it helped me sort out some conflicting moral impulses that I've had for a while, so I found a lot of this really useful, even if some of it is an unfinished thought. So take it in that spirit, is this is um, us thinking out loud, as it were. Oh, and just before we get started, I'm just going to give you the definition of one word, or one phrase, which is going to come up a lot in this conversation, and that's an Archimedean point. So, this is just from Wikipedia. An Archimedean point is a hypothetical vantage point from which an observer can objectively perceive the subject of inquiry with a view to totality. The idea of, quote, removing oneself from the object of study so that one can see it in relation to all other things, but remain independent of them is described as a view from an Archimedean point. And it gives the example of John Rawls's original position as um, so such a vantage point. So that's something Professor Levy will make use of in this conversation, and I just wanted to quickly give you that definition up front in case you hadn't come across that term. So, without any further preamble, let's get into part two with Professor Jacob T. Levy. This is a big picture question, but it's something I've been thinking a a bit about recently. That, just stipulate for a minute that that line of argumentation is correct, and not just having moral visions, but having competing moral visions is in some sense ineliminatably human. Um, And that hence politics is a necessary and valuable part of our shared existence with each other, that so much of um, journalistic and just everyday political analysis seems to be just wishing that that weren't the case. It seems to be that so much of political 
thought in sort of the real world, as it were, is sort of wishing that politics weren't there. That they're just that that is not at a conceptual level, but at a practical level, we could Absolutely. all just come together. We could all just um, that that we people need to stop thinking so irrationally and so emotionally as if we ourselves aren't doing that as well. And the 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 the, the thing to be sought most from the political is, in an ironic way, the end of the political, and that that just seems wrong to me. Um, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, so I, I think that that's at the root of a lot of different, both mistaken moves in political philosophy and mistakes about politics in the world. Uh, there's a real craving for unity and consensus and agreement, and that's not just a mistake that philosophers made at some point along the way. That's it's something to do with our psychology as as group or tribal creatures who then find ourselves inhabiting polities that look nothing like the tribes or groups that our inbred psychology trains us toward. Uh, we, we like feeling like we're surrounded by agreement. We like that reinforcement of our ideas. And so we try to project out onto the world, well, the normal state of affairs would be if everyone agreed with me. This leads us to go wrong, not just in thinking about justice, but in thinking, for example, about democracy. It's a problem in academic thought about democracy that so much democratic theory has an orientation toward consensus. It's about the question, what would the people do? What do the people will? What do we as a unified people, singular, a people, what does the people choose? Now, one of the things that we've learned in the last 200 years is that democratic government in political societies like those that characterize the modern world can't survive without parties and partisan contestation. Parties are how democracy operationalizes. It's how uh, the electorate is able to hold the powerful at all accountable over any kind of time horizon. And we have real difficulty building political parties into democratic theory. This is starting to get a little bit better in academic political theory, uh, led by people like Nancy Rosenblum, but it's been the default condition in academic political theory. Don't know what to do with parties. We don't know what to do with disagreement. In real-life democracy, there's this deep aspiration for there to be a truth of national unity that overrides and underlies at the same time the messy, unpleasant business that there are parties that disagree with each other. In the United States, there's a tradition that Jefferson really starts in 1800 with his inaugural address. And he says, we are all Federalists and we are all Republicans. That is to say, with my election, we've overcome the fact of disagreement. It's a very bad rhetorical move. It's a way for presidents to claim to overcome what's actually just the fact that they won an election. <laughs> it's a way for them to claim to be the whole instead of owning up to the responsibility of being just the currently larger part. So, but it, yeah, no, but go it, ahead. But it appeals to people. People are drawn to it. They're drawn to this vision of... A, a real deep underlying nationalism. Uh, it contributes to very bad kinds of, for example, populism and exclusionary politics. Because once you've built in the idea that the natural state of affairs is that everyone agrees, which of course means they agree with me, you then encounter real-life people who don't agree with you, and you try to read them out of being part of the people properly understood. You're the traitors, one way or another. You're the outsiders or the infiltrators. Uh, your membership in the people doesn't count. Because if it did, then I'd have to acknowledge the people wasn't unanimous. And that's a really toxic thing in democratic political life. It's psychologically harder to just accept the ineliminability of disagreement. But you need to accept its ineliminability in order to really come to terms with its legitimacy. 
and not coming to terms with its legitimacy is the source of a lot of poison in democratic political life. Yes. And so, yeah, and I, I, I do think that, that that can go, I'm not saying you're doing this, um, but I think that can go too far and become just reductionist um, and, um, you know, politics is defined exclusively by conflict and disagreement. It's, it, there's many elements to, to what a mature conception of the political is. It, it is rupture, it is disagreement, it is also... Um, change, it is also conceptions of time, it is also, as we discussed, uh, visions and planning for the world. Um, and the, the way I think about it is, it is it's always a sort of crimeal quest for certainty. You're always, like, getting it in hand and then it gets out of hand again. You know, you have these elections and referendums and important things that are meant to be final, or the aspiration of those who push them is to achieve some sort of finality and consensus. But then, I mean, as we're rather spectacularly and embarrassingly witnessing in my home country of the UK, that 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 seeming finality of the result unravels again almost the minute that you 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 think you have it in hand. And, you know, I don't work in um uh professional political philosophy, I work for, you know, political campaigns. And when I say this, there's two sorts of tribes on the the left. And I, I, I get a I get very different responses from them, but I think they kind of boil down to the same thing. And I'm going to give these both back to you, which is if I'm talking to a sort of centrist, let's call them that, I'll get the the, the response of like they'll sort of say, um but then how do we get to unity? How do we get to um, a point where Americans just don't hate each other? And on the, the sort of far-left social democrat progressive side, I'll get the, but then if there's always going to be disagreement, how do we get to the point where everyone has health care and we have the Green New Deal? And to both of them, I just sort of say, but you're asking me, how do we get to a state of the world that almost certainly isn't going to happen? Like, that's your mm -hmm. question, you know? Yes. And I don't really know how to answer it better than that. I'm not saying that it's absolutely impossible. I'm just saying I we're not going to get to a point where Republicans and Democrats sing Kumbaya. And we're also probably not, I mean, maybe, but probably not going to get to a point where a utopian vision is fully realised. We might get a certain way down that road and I don't think there's anything wrong about being idealistic about what you're pursuing but you're sort of just asking me why aren't there fairies at the bottom of my garden and I don't really know what to say to that does that make sense it does um there's there's a desire to have guarantees and I think you're right that it's a desire in real politics as well as in political theory uh, one of the ways that it manifests is imagining constitutionalizing whatever you think is the, for you, the non-negotiable thing that we must get, uh, as if winning the kind of supermajority or unanimity, depending on your constitutional system, but the supermajority that takes the constitutional amendment is easier than just winning an election, winning an ordinary majority and implementing it. Uh, but what constitutionalizing it suggests to people is a guarantee. And so when I say, well, no, you can't constitutionalize it, they say, well, then how can you guarantee? I say, As you say, we can't guarantee. There's not a theoretical guarantee. Sometimes things will happen. Sometimes my side will win elections, and my side in winning elections will pursue policies that I think are better ones, and sometimes not. Uh, Shifting the ground from ordinary politics and ordinary elections to hypothetical guarantees doesn't actually change any part of that. And, okay, this is a hell of an analogy, so just bear with me a sec. But th th that just seems like an obvious truth about the world to me, that of course there's not guarantees about, um, you know, Trump might win. He did. And, like... You know, it, it it might get worse. He might win again. You know, like, these are... Like, I'd probably put that at about even money right now. Like, these are just things that are true about the world. And, you know, 
if your critique of a political approach or way of thinking about it or constitutional system is that it doesn't give you those guarantees, you're just sort of looking for something that's not there. Now, here's the, the um, hell of the analogy. I sort of feel like something that like that is true of a type of political thinking that's idealized by that, that that could be made to be represented by a cutout version of rules which is people want moral guarantees as well they want to guarantee that like you say that if you added up all the utility the right answer yes. wouldn't turn out to be torture and my right. answer there is the same is so like i'm very much of the moral consequentialist school of thought and the response always is well what if it turned out that in this one weird situation it was right to torture people and i think the answer just has to be well then it would be right to torture people i mean i do think there are reasons that a lot of the most common you know counterintuitive counterexamples to consequentialism fail but if the argument is working morality out that way might lead to results that we don't like i i don't know anything to do there other than bite the bullet and go yeah that that could be true you know right i i don't think that for any version of consequentialism that you want to introduce as important in politics you need to stop with the strictly one-act version of it. Surely most of what we do most of the time in politics and political normativity is one kind or another of rule consequentialism. Right. Um, right. So, like, I think consequentialism does get out the bag of, like, the magistrate and the mob. Like, do you kill an innocent man to prevent a riot right. that will kill ten people? There's, Like you right. say, there's a fairly simple answer to that which is, well, no, because, like, that's not a rule that could, or we have strong reason to believe that that is a rule that would overall produce less happiness or utility or good consequences or whatever you say. But the yeah, fact but, that but, you can make some, that move to get hear... out of it, th there will be counterintuitive moral cases. There will, you, you know, it, you can't know in advance that that sort of thinking won't get you to a place that's that right. feels there, weird. There, there will be innocent people who will be punished. Uh, you you can't go from the rejection of that famous counterexample to act utilitarianism to saying, well, therefore, let we we must adopt the completely innocent of consequences rule. No innocent person may ever be punished, because the only way to do that is not to punish, because we don't have enough knowledge, and we knowingly create rules that are going to have costs that are going to go wrong sometimes so my my 101 scenario for this and it's a terrible example but i think it explicates it quite clearly is you know if you want to just say we know morality in advance and that you know there are these rules or whatever or the you know consequentialism will never lead you to do something morally counterintuitive um consider the case of the final 911 flight the one that was brought down by passengers like intentionally bringing down a civilian airplane presumably yeah. violates how many moral constraints right one's tempted to say all of them yet it nonetheless was not only morally correct but probably necessary and very brave and very admirable and that's a situation where it's like i think that is probably was you know or worse still if the passengers hadn't brought it down and the government decided to shoot it down that would I would argue, be justified by moral consequentialism. But it's a hell of an ugly thing, and, like, you will get those situations, you know? I pick that as a real-world one, just because that is something that, that happened, you know? Yeah. Um. Um, but then my broader point, and bring this back into your thesis, is that problem is most vivid with consequentialism, but it seems like rules... And a whole generation of thinkers, actually, of which he's sort of the tail end from the sort of, like, uh, rise of totalitarian democracy and this whole this whole reaction after the Second World War to, like, we need to secure constitutional liberalism on a footing such that nothing like the Nazis will ever happen again. Uh -huh. That is sort of the fear at the heart of it, right? Um, is, like... Any system of meta-ethics, if you're genuinely sort of reasoning out 
honestly has the ability to lead you somewhere where you might not want to be led. That, unless you just... And the answer to that, to just start by saying we know things in advance because we know them, isn't a great answer. Or am I being, like, unfair there? Everything you, everything you just said is certainly true. I'm trying to think whether I'm quite on board with the diagnosis of brawls in the generation. There's... Anyway, there's there's something to it. Uh, it it is the case that confronted with the really deep uncertainty and deep kind of surprise and shock about how unstable things were able to get and what the collapse was like, like there there was a desire for secure footing and for guarantees that maybe aren't available to us. So if if these guarantees aren't available either at the conceptual or the practical level, then how do we make sense? Because I think that, like, when I say this to people, I think where the fear comes from is, like, if people... I think people feel... And I'm not talking political philosophers here. I'm talking, like, just people who ask me that question. I think they feel like if they give up their guarantees, then there'll be no moral truth to be had and nothing will really matter and we'll be howling into the void. Reassure me that that's not the case. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think that we we have our ordinary moral lives to look to to think that it's not the case. Uh, it's it's a strange feature about politics in some ways that people imagine that. That's the choice that we confront, certainty or nothingness. Um, you know, I, I don't know when I go through the day that keeping a promise or telling the truth or stopping to try to lend a hand and be a good Samaritan to someone isn't going to end disastrously for me, isn't going to have terrible consequences for the world. Um, I, I don't have certainty the moral world all lines up. Things can go badly. Things can go badly because I'm taken advantage of. Things could go badly because of sheer circumstance. Things can go badly because I'm fooling myself. I'm distracting myself from some more significant moral consequence of the thing that I'm doing. Um, and we can start to be aware of more and more. We can start to try to increase our moral knowledge. Uh, that doesn't ever mean that in a world full of other people, in a world full of circumstance and accident, that we will have those kinds of guarantees. Um, it's, I, I, I think it's a strange feature about how people worry about normativity in politics. They look for a level of certainty that we don't expect in our moral lives. Yes, and you don't expect... I mean, this is this is a tangential point that we, we needn't get lost in. But people say things about politics that they'd never claim in any other domain. And um, sort of like, in politics, refusing to choose between the quote-unquote lesser of two evils is like seen as like a, a, a noble and idealistic stand. Whereas like in no other domain of our lives do we say I refuse to choose between having toothache and going to the dentist I refuse to choose by between them and yet in <laughs> politics that just becomes a normal and accepted sentiment there's so much of political thinking that the minute you map it onto day-to-day -day experience just becomes of not just unreasonable but obviously unreasonable uh I The particular analogy worries me. I think one of the things that is distinctive about politics is its unavoidability, uh, the degree to which we're really thrown into the world, hopelessly entangled in our lives um, with people we can't ultimately walk away from. Whereas in ordinary daily life, if I encounter a disagreement between two people who are really both being awful, then it's, it's actually a very legitimate thing, sometimes really the right thing, to say, 
I'm not going to try to sort out the question about which of you is being slightly less awful. I'm going to walk away. I'm not going to let you drag me down to either the lowest or the second lowest level here. Uh, the problem in politics is that the choice can't be walked away from in quite the same way. Right. And that's, no, no, I mean, look, I completely agree. And that's why I used the example of going to the dentist, because that's an unavoidable, like, if you don't go to the dentist, you'll have to suffer the toothache. Like, like, it doesn't even necessarily have to be binary, but there's there's no choice where you simply reject the choice. And it's like, you know, if it's not going to be Trump, it's going to be Hillary Clinton and vice versa. Um, Like, you know, if we're not going to have X policy, we're going to, you know, like, if if you don't like, God knows, abortion law, you can't opt out of the choosing, you know, because to, to, to not engage with that debate is to just accept whatever the status quo is, you know? That's right. Um, so there, there are ordinary choices in which grown-ups recognize that you pay costs in order to get benefits. You suffer the pain of going to the dentist in order to avoid the greater pain. Um, but in, in ordinary daily moral life, where you encounter bad people, I do, I, I, I do think disengagement from complicity with bad people can be just an admirable thing. You know, I, try, trying to choose between a job at a terrible, at a, at a firm that does something that I think is terrible and another firm that does something that I think is slightly less terrible, we admire the person who says, no, I don't want to choose just the slightly less evil job. I'm going to quit these jobs and go find something else to do at much less remuneration. Right, and uh, you think the to refuse, to refuse complicity, to refuse complicity is, in normal daily moral life, very often the right and admirable thing to do. It's in the unavoidability of politics that sometimes trying to avoid complicity means that you're acting irresponsibly. But do you think then that people are incorrectly generalizing or um, taking the experience of like not trying to, to sort out an argument when you have an exit option and mapping that onto a political situation that's actually much more analogous to the dentist, that they're mapping the wrong experiences on, essentially? Yeah, um, I, I think what I'm saying is I'm not happy with either analogy as an analogy for politics, because um, complicity with an evil seems to be morally meaningfully different from just paying a cost for a benefit. We, when, we, when we go to the dentist and we get the toothache, we, we feel no regret. And we don't say, well, let's, let's desperately try to make sure that nothing like that ever happens again. Whereas if you find yourself complicit in a lesser evil for the sake of avoiding a greater evil, you really might well, if you're a good person, feel your hands to be dirty, feel yourself to be compromised, think it's a matter of considerable urgency to try to make sure that future choices aren't that bad again. In, in, in non-moral choices, we don't think there's, getting, there's a way to solve the problem that benefits have costs. But, and, and, and so we just pay the cost without regret. I don't think that our experience of moral complicity is like that regretlessness. And even if it's unavoidable in politics, it shouldn't be like that regretlessness. So you, I mean, the, the analogy here would be I remember really vividly um, when um, um, Le Pen ran, not not the daughter, the father, um, ran for president of France against Christ, it was Chirac, and it came down to Chirac versus Le Pen, and Chirac, obviously, the, the socialist left were not happy with this guy, um, and they symbolically, like, hundreds of thousands of people did this, symbolically washed their hands after voting for him. Um, yes. Um, which would sort of speak to what you're talking about, but they nonetheless did vote for him, which I, I I would I would maintain being the correct thing to do, and I think I do worry 
the the what you're talking about of you, you know I do get as a psychological matter that feeling of like dirtiness you could say right um the the washing the hands after voting for him what bothers me is when that feeling not just is balanced but clearly overrides out of all proportion to the weight we should give it um, the ability to choose better versus worse outcomes. I know a lot of people who would not vote for Hillary Clinton because of Bernie Sanders and Wall Street and she cheated him and stipulate that all of that's true and you would feel a bit dirty about voting for her. Um, or, or you're very radical on Black Lives Matter and there was the super predator comment. There's a legitimate feeling of dirtiness there. I'm not discounting that completely. But then you're going to allow almost an overt white supremacist into the office and someone who's certainly surrounded by overt white supremacists on that basis like i get the need to symbolically wash your hands but i don't i think there's a sure. lot of circumstances uh, where it's it's weighted in far too heavily in a lot of people's yes, thinking in uh in the louisiana gubernatorial race when edwin edwards ran against david duke grand wizard of the ku klux klan the the slogan was vote for the crook it's important <laughs> um, and it worked and edwards one and Edwards was a deeply corrupt, sleazy governor, but vote for the crook, it was important. Uh, but too much thinking in terms of dentist analogies is going to tend to tell people it's never legitimate. It's never legitimate to stay away from an election because there's always at least one slightly lesser evil. It's never legitimate to vote third party. It's never legitimate to spoil your ballot if you're in a mandatory vote because there's always a slightly less. You're right that sometimes there's a very, very, very much greater evil. And we need to be able to give that its moral weight. But I think taking seriously the problem of lesser evil, the problem of complicity, the problem of feeling like you've facilitated, given your permission, signed your name up to all of the various evils that the lesser evils are going to commit. That's a real problem, too. I guess, to some extent, I kind of just don't get it. And I, like, almost just like on a phenomenological level, I just don't experience the world in that way. I don't, I don't see casting a ballot for a candidate as you you then signing your name to everything that candidate's ever done or is going to do i i get that some people really experience that the other way and i don't deny that it's a very real experience and um i'm thinking particularly here actually of um my black friends who felt they really couldn't vote for Hillary Clinton, I'm not discounting that they feel that way. I'm not discounting the importance of those feelings. And I'm certainly not as a white man pretending to fully understand or even you know, maybe, maybe even remotely understand how racism affects people. I, I just think it's, it's morally wrong in some sense. I, I don't... I don't think you are that in in the specific act of voting for a candidate. Now, maybe there's other forms of political engagement where you really are allowing that to represent you. So, for instance, you might not want to post on your Facebook encouraging people to vote for them. That might be a bridge too far. Um, I just don't... I don't... I understand it carries a lot of psychological weight and we account for that. I, I struggle with how much moral weight we should assign to it. Though casting a ballot in a multi-millions or tens of millions of voters election, it's, it's actually hard to nail down quite what the right moral phenomenology is. You say, well, I'm not signing my name up for it. Well, what am I doing? I'm also not deciding. I'm not choosing the next president of the United States because mine will not be the decisive vote. 
now you say, well, but what if lots of people think like you? I say, well, if lots of people thought like me and chose my third-party candidate, who I think is very much less evil, then my third-party candidate, who is very much less evil, would get elected. So, well, they're not going to get elected. They say, well, my vote isn't going to decide the election. There's this weird feature of the numbers that means, on the one hand, we want me to take my vote tremendously seriously, as if it is much more consequential than it really is. And on the other hand, I'm not supposed to engage in this other kind of generalization. It says, well, if everybody did what I did, then we wouldn't be stuck choosing between these two evils at all. Uh, I, I don't think that there's a simple way in which you can say to your friends, no, you've just misunderstood what voting is like. Because what voting like is, is actually really weird. So it is undeniable that there are symbolic aspects to voting, and indeed the importance of it is a part of why it's morally valuable that people have the vote is not neatly captured by um, democracies produce better outcomes, although that's true independently. It's that, that having the franchise we have decided as a society is a signifier of equal moral worth, and different groups being granted the franchise has, has sort of been coterminous with... Um, an assertion of that equal moral worth. So there's, there, there is that element to it, I'm not denying that. But then with regards to, like, my vote doesn't make a difference, um, sh surely there's, there's a middle ground between, like, what if everyone thought that way? There's surely a middle ground between my vote is at the margin, and it, at the margin it just doesn't matter, Right? Between that level of analysis and the level of analysis, well, what if a hundred million people thought that way? I would more put it at like, what if, a, what if two more million people thought that way? Right? Like, what if like a chunk? Right? And that's sort of where you're at when it comes to um, electoral coalitions, right? Is like, uh, there's a level of analysis of like, what does this ideological segment or demographic segment or what have you. What does this chunk of people en masse do? And we have a real problem on the American left in that there's a chunk of our electoral coalition, call it like five million people in this country who are very self-conscious far-left ideologues. Um, there's a chunk of them who I agree with, by the way, about a lot of policy conclusions, who every single election have to publicly wrestle with whether they're going to vote or not. And honestly, if you're doing that... I was going to say if you're doing that for state senator, I don't care. Actually, I, I kind of care even then, because, like, local elections do matter more than people think. But every presidential election, we have this public wrestling. So I wouldn't put it at the level of what if the entire society changed, or at the level of, like, one individual vote doesn't matter, but more at the level of what if that particular ideological cluster didn't have that feature to it, where it, to my mind, massively overweights in the value of moral complicity. That's a bit long, but sorry. Uh, I I don't know why we would think that the what if two million people question is somehow the right question that uniquely determines the moral phenomenology of voting. I get what you're saying, but I, I don't see why it has some kind of unique status as being the right way to frame each person's internal deliberation about whether what they're doing creates complicity or not. I mean or or, or or framing their consequentialist thinking the right way. But it's it's just not true that my decision about how to cast my vote is determinative of how two million people are going to cast their votes. Um well actually um so this is a rabbit hole I didn't necessarily expect to go down, but I... Okay, so, uh, and by the way, I'm, I'm, I'm spitballing all of this. We are now way far away from anything that I've ever given serious scholarly thought to, so... And I'm not a serious I, scholar, I, I, so... I, 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 ask, I ask my future listener, my listeners not to 
hold me to this as if this is some very serious argument that I put forward. I, I'm I'm just trying to respond in real time to the things you're putting forward. Yeah, I am too. Um, okay, so your thing is like, okay, that is a question we can ask. It is a question we can ask at um the individual level, uh, at the sort of two million and at the hundred million, like um why should any of those frames be our go-to for how we look at it in terms of the the moral assessment of, of, of that act? Um I, I think actually it's a bit thicker than that. Um because actually for a, a for for let's say a, a a voter who is at a fairly low level of political information and engagement, someone who has a partisan affiliation, um, but doesn't generally talk or think about politics much, um, th there's actually I just think an argument that at the individual level, that's how you would want to assess that person. When when I talk about people who are self-consciously ideological, I think that there is an argument for sort of assessing their actions in the whatever phrase you used, but the, the sort of the, the unit of analysis is that ideological group. And the reasoning for that is ideologies are mutually shared and mutually created and mutually um, sustaining products. So we talk a lot about base voters and like political elites. Um, I think like in my political thinking, there's sort of like a mid-level where elites are like congressmen, people who own newspapers, you know, whatever. There's like a mid-level of people who um, consume more than three or four hours of news every day, post about it on Facebook at least once a week, and would, would be the sort of people who are susceptible to show up to volunteer to knock doors or deliver leaflets. So if there's maybe like a hundred thousand elites in each political party in America, there's then maybe a few million mid-level. Like, I'm a classic mid-level engagement person, right? And I think the the moral logic for both the low information voter, the mid-level and the elite are quite different in that I think if you're just showing up to vote as an individual that's one thing, but if you're participating in a shared ideological discourse that's continually, you're posting about it on Facebook every week continually reaffirming this moral norm that the dirty hands problem is the primary thing that should be deciding your decision, then actually looking at those group of people as a group is morally appropriate. I think I'm going to tap out of this. This this <laughs> is an argument that you've been thinking about and developing with people in your part of politics for a long time, and it's it's just not something that I've given really sustained thought to. No, no, so, sorry to lead you down a complete rabbit hole. That was... Uh... <laughs> okay, so to, to revert back to a previous point on the tree, if we don't have these guarantees from the political, i.e. we're guaranteed a particular outcome, or even, you know, we're guaranteed that... Um, morality will turn out to be what we want it to be. Um, then how? What? What is your alternative for building? How would you go about start to build a non-ideal approach to political normativity? So I think that we need to start by understanding politics and political life. I think that getting our heads around the strange features of shared social life oriented around institutions of co uh, coercion and power, which we share with people with whom we might not share anything other than our shared subjection to the shared system of power. Uh, those are things like the circumstances of justice are things. Those are problems that shape the question, what kind of normativity can we do here? And then I think that we, within those boundaries, within the boundaries of doing normativity about that distinctive kind of unusual environment, then we start to focus on evils. We start to focus on 
injustices that we feel sure of and their mitigation. Uh, so that's that's a way of saying that I'm both following what the so-called realists in political philosophy have argued that there's there's a normativity about political life that is not reducible to everyday morality, and, and that I'm rejecting the epistemological claim of the ideal theorists that say you can't ever know what you're doing until you work out what your ultimate vision is. I think most of the time in moral life, we do things without having our vision of the moral heaven. We, we encounter bad things, and we learn about them, and we try to reason about them, and in reasoning about them, we engage in some idealization and some abstraction and build up something like their counterpart concept of the thing that's better. But we start our moral learning not with the distant horizon, but with the nearby evil or injustice. So the, the, that, that's my two-part methodological answer. First, you get politics right in your head. And then within the confines of politics, you, as Judith Sklar put it, you put injustice first. And, I mean, I can think of two thinkers who immediately jump to mind for that. Um, is um, Aramatia Sen and his idea that we are just sort of reactive and you don't necessarily need to know like what the mm -hmm. optimal level of income inequality is in order to know that it's too high. Um, and that we, we, we sort of like, if you get put, what's his analogy? If you get put in a room that's far too hot, it's not useful to say to someone, well, okay, but before... What's we... the ideal temperature? Right. Exactly. That, that's the first guy that pops into my head for that. That just, that just seems correct to me, right? Yes. Uh, <laughs> I mean... Trying to be fair to the people with whom I disagree, um, their objection, the ideal theorist's objection to Sen's argument is to worry about getting trapped in local equilibria. So for, for the big metaphor that Sen uses to say, I don't need to know which way Everest is to know where uphill is from where I'm standing. The ideal theorists say, right, but if you really, really care about getting as high as you can, and the only thing you pay attention to is where's uphill from where I'm standing. And you happen to be standing on a really short hill. You'll go up to the really short hill until you're done. Then you'll never move again because there's no direction that's uphill from where you're standing. And you won't ever get to a much better possible position. But that doesn't mean that you can't have, like, like we talked about earlier, like visions as part of your guide. But as part, not the entire thing. Yeah. Uh, no, that that's right, and ultimately I'm on Sen's side of that disagreement. But um, I, I, I just wanted to acknowledge that there are counterarguments. The sense in which the is the room too hot example is obviously true doesn't mean that Sen is obviously right about the whole thing. Though I do think Sen is right about the it's, thing. it's just a wonderfully powerful, simple image, you know, yes. like that that yes. that's stuck for a reason. Um, the other person who comes to mind um, is Orlando Patterson, and you, you referenced this, that his big thesis of the experience of slavery being generative of the idea of freedom, that, you know, never mind in theory, in practice, political ideals come about. You know, we're not, we, at least according to his account, we're not naturally born being fr desiring freedom. Actually, it's very counterintuitive for most people who's ever lived. But we came to that understanding of that as a valued societal goal precisely because of um, complex historical sociological forces to do with the institution of slavery and that's another element is the purely empirical recognition that our values are not arising in a vacuum that they're coming from particular experiences in the world yeah and i i rely on the example of patterson's wonderful book a lot i think that it's a an extremely persuasive and compelling vision of what our moral learning is like which includes our moral learning toward high political ideals Mm. It's it's an account of moral learning that's very congruent with the account of moral learning we get in Smith's theory of moral sentiments, but Smith isn't ultimately thinking about high political ideals. Uh, Patterson shows that 
the kind of Smithian and Sklarian dynamic of I encounter an evil and I reflect on it. And I can start to do philosophical work, but that's growing out of the seed of my encounter with the evil. That that's not just how we do ordinary daily moral experience. It's how we get to big, important political ideals, too. I, I think it's a, a profoundly important book and something that helps us to see what it's like to do even quite ambitious normative thinking about our social condition from where we stand in a messy and complicated and fallen world that is filled with injustice. Yeah, that you're, you're talking about freedom, I take it, when you talk about the book. Um, yes, yes, Patterson's Freedom in the Making of Western Culture. Um, that's one of my favourite books. I reread it every two years, just like, just because I want to. It's it's a stunning accomplishment. It's that good, absolutely. Um, and I, I've heard a lot of people say they find it inaccessible, but once you get into it, you're into it, you know? Um, really? So, I mean, really that they find it inaccessible? I don't, but, like, I feel like I just have... Uh, 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 I'm trying to find like a non-wankery way of saying I have an intellectual framework and disposition in which I'm just very susceptible to that method and analysis and way of describing the world and way of thinking about the world. I think some people... I think some people read something into it that isn't there and sort of find it inaccessible on that basis. I think um, someone else I've been very influenced by is Michael Frieden, and there's a similar thing there where the idea that because you're describing the social um, the the um, the social forces that have led to us creating these ideas, that, that you're saying those ideas are false. Now, I don't think that's what either of those people are saying, but I think that's what they're read to be saying, and I think there's a class of people who take, like, one look at it and um, uh, reject it outright, I think, unfairly. That's interesting. I mean, it's, it's interesting in a way that kind of mirrors worries about genealogical approaches to intellectual history that you find in Foucault and his followers. To showing that something has a history isn't a debunking move. Uh, yeah, and to be fair, I had to be sort of wrenched through. I had to be, like, pulled through that keyhole from the other side. So, um... When I first started studying political theory as an undergraduate, Michael Frieden was my tutor. Um, and obviously in the Oxford system, you get one-on-one -on -one tutorials. So I've actually just spent a certain amount of time with the guy. And at first, I very much had the reaction to a lot of the shit he'd say, which was like, but morals really are moral. You know what I mean? Um, and he'd go, well, they're moral to you and, you know, not to the next person and... Sort of, I, I mean, Frieden can lean too hard on the postmodernist side, but just like, like listening to the, like, like eventually, it just sort of clicked for me that, like, the fact you're standing in a particular place on a map and you can describe that map like historically and sociologically and culturally doesn't mean you can't stand somewhere on it and defend it. It just means there's a map around you. Um, but it, it did take me a while to get pulled through, and I see people sort of on the other side of it who haven't been pulled through, and so I, I feel where they're coming from. That would be my thesis there. This feels related to the guarantee point. I, I think that how people strive for a guarantee is partly that they look for some kind of either intellectual or political Archimedean point. Um, there, there's got to be a place outside the world, outside our disagreements, outside our history, outside our kind of experience of being socially caused entities. There has to be some place we can reach to from which answers are more certain, whereas answers that arise in our messy, complicated, partly caused world, they don't really count. Right. And 
And yes, I, I agree that I can wrap my head around what people mean when they say that, but I, I, I really profoundly don't share it. I think that people like us in a world like us, in, in a world like this world, have always worked toward normativity. It's one of the things that creatures like us do. And there doesn't have to be an Archimedean point for it to be a meaningful enterprise. Yeah, I, I mean, no, I, I agree. And there's, there's, there's the even deeper thing of like, but, you know, do morals exist at all? If we live in, if we accept that we're sort of soft naturalists, I does not. Uh, any big supervening right. deistic entity coming in, but also there's not anything spooky like a hardcore free will, or like there's nothing like coming in from the outside to say this is what makes it right. Then, then why is something right? And you know th there are answers to that question. Um, and you know we have, if nothing else, we have conscious minds. And as soon as you have multiple conscious minds in the universe who can talk to each other through language, you're yeah. going to get, like, a range of desirability concepts are going to come online. But there's sort of like, but what if that, like, just slowly building it up genealogically, looking at history, looking at sort of common sense, quite frankly, what if that doesn't get me back to where I want to be? I think that's the worry. And the answer just has to be maybe it won't, you know? That, that has to be right. Uh, or the, the more ambitious way to put it is, well, then you have more persuasive work to do. Yes. But, but that's all that the answer can be. Yes. Your, your, your idealization, your, your theory that would generate a guarantee, in the world you have to understand that as another persuasive move. And if, if it doesn't actually persuade your fellow humans, then you haven't gotten a guarantee. You're still just in the same boat. You, you haven't gotten to where you want to be. Yes, but there's like... Uh, it is, but, the, but why are there not fairies in my backyard? Objection to all of this. There's sort of this deep psychological urge that runs through. I guess, like, I've spent a lot of time feeling, like, vaguely frustrated with that urge, but then maybe we just need to take a step back on our side and just say, well, it clearly is an urge people have that's, like, important to them, you know? Yeah, and I think we... I mean, we, we, we can... I don't think that I fully buy this, but... We, we could find a genealogy of the urge, which might help people like us believe it more, which is to say, in the West, we've built up a whole lot of normative and moral categories that made sense against the background of Christianity, against, you know, we, we have a system of normativity and normative language that was hopelessly entangled with the vision of there being a divine lawgiver and an Archimedean point in heaven and all the rest. Uh, and that people find it unsatisfying when you take all of that away, but we're still kind of left with the same inherited moral language. This is the kind of twisted version of Alistair MacIntyre, you know, where we're using a moral language that might not make sense anymore. If we had not lived in a God-haunted world, we might have had a different normativity that was more clearly worldly. Maybe people are experiencing frustration because um, because they don't have access anymore to the thing that helped animate the whole system. I, I don't I don't think that I buy that, but that that I, could be a story. It's a really interesting story. I don't know that I I don't I don't know that I know enough to know whether I buy it or not. But um the idea that we're still um we're we're dealing with translated versions of Christian concepts, but we haven't translated all of them. We've only translated some of them, and the ones and, that and we some have, of won't, some of them won't survive translation. Uh, the you know the question of whether intrinsic human equality and dignity or rights, the question of whether those wholly survive secularization is a really live one in political philosophy. You have people who are pushing pretty hard on the thought that 
we we are not going to find substitute grounding concepts for equality that will do the work that created in God's image did in launching that as a philosophical commitment in the first place. I think I would be one of the... I mean, that's a whole other can of worms we need to open up here. I think I would be one of those who would be tempted to push that door and say it's just what you can get on the basis of your consequentialism, and that will reinflate some, but not all, of these sorts of binding constraints on what you can do to human beings. With, I mean, with that said, obviously, there's just sort of like a social function to rights. Is it's a way, again, as we talked about, of aspiring to a sort of universality that may be ultimately crimerial. Um, and I don't think you can discount the social function of just using the word rights in language. Um, but do you do you think that's true though that we are just like because I've heard this a lot and I don't maybe just don't know enough about history to know the answer but like we are I mean obviously it's true that sort of like a lot of our contemporary political ideologies and moral philosophies evolved out of Christianity but like we, they're just like a sort of impoverished and poorly translating form that's missing the um, original. Uh, mechanism that gives life to it all that that seems too far i think it's too far but i think that uh i think it was the tendency of a lot of 20th century intellectuals to underestimate how far that might be true and so there's value in having the intellectual pendulum swing back now to people really thinking about the foundations of those concepts and worrying about this problem. Um, I'm sure it's true for some of our concepts. And rebuilding the foundations without God and Christianity uh, will sometimes be really hard and will sometimes not happen successfully at all, and will sometimes only happen with a kind of bad faith distortion. You know, if, if you know exactly the shape of the philosophical concept you need when you've taken God out, then you can contort something. But the question of whether that would have been a plausible place to start, rather than just a way to contort something into an intellectual whole, it, it, it might not be. Uh, I think that there's a great deal of political normativity, there's a great deal about rights, there's a great deal about equality, for which that's not true, and for which, for example, we can find lots of pre-Christian Roman antecedents. But, that, but, 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 that, but that's not everything. And, and certainly the more Kantian your kind of rights theory is, the more Kantian your theory of dignity is, the, it's been a healthy thing in the last generation or so that people have started to say, well, you might not be able to be a fully-blown Kantian or a fully-blown Lockean and just call the foundation secular morality instead of God. In a way that a lot of, I think, 20th century thinkers had tended to do. They would, they would say, no, no, you can just stop Locke at natural rights. You don't need God. And it's not clear that's true. And it's not clear that you can rebuild Kantianism without God at the core either. I don't know um, Kantianism well enough to judge. Um, I've always had a vague, spurious, unresearched intuition that the first treatise on government, the, the religious one, is much more important to understanding the overall framework than people give it credit for. That the, 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 the thing doesn't... I'd, I'd say there's definitely an argument that... Um, you know, the the theories of creation, divine ownership, um, divine knowledge of the world really seriously underpin everything else Locke says. Certainly as a historical person. Now, whether or not there's an intellectual project where you can free it of that, I don't know. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Anyway, yeah. that's a so, whole other so story. Part, partly led by Jeremy Waldron, I think the pendulum has been swinging back toward a lock for whom the religion is more inextricable. Okay, um, uh, I really, really appreciate your time today. I have a bad habit of these running over, so thanks for sticking with me. Do you want to tell listeners um, 
where they should go to uh, follow you or, you know, wherever you want to direct them? Uh, I have a website at jacobtlevy.com, and that has links to both all of my academic research and all of my public commentary, which includes my uh, essays that I write as a senior fellow of the Niskanen Center and the podcast that I've recorded and uh, videos of lectures that I've given that exist online. Uh, yes, you can find it all at jacobtlevy.com. Thank you for listening to the Political Philosophy Podcast. Next week on the podcast, I will have Professor Peter Singer on, who I'm sure will be familiar to many of you, and we're going to take a slightly offbeat look at some of his work and just take on the question, how to be happy. Very important question, but one that seems to get neglected, even if consequentialist philosophy is seemingly all about just that. So that'll be out next week, and then I think I'm going to use that as an excuse to say that's the end of Series 2, and start Series 3 of the podcast with some solos projects, particularly a look, um, the next one coming up will be on Machiavelli and his role in Republican theory, and then I might take on some contemporary political issues, either solo or with guests, I'm still working that out. As always, by the way, please feel free to send me suggestions for what topics you'd like to see covered on the podcast. You can tweet them at me. My Twitter handle is polphilpod. It's on the website. Uh, politicalphilosophypodcast.com is the website. Or if they're longer than 240 characters, you can email me. The email I have in relation to this show is just toby, T-O-B-Y, at politicalphilosophypodcast.com. All one word, spell how you'd expect to spell it. Um... And even if I'm not able to get back to every individual tweet and email I get, I generally do read all of them, even if I don't manage to get a reply out to all of them, just for time constraints. So please do keep sending me suggestions and ideas. That's really valuable as I work out what I'm doing with this show. As always, a big thank you to my patrons. If you want to sponsor this podcast, you can do so at patreon.com stroke political philosophy podcast, and any donation of any amount is super appreciated. The sole funding mechanism for this show is audience donations. We don't have sponsors, we don't do advertisements, so the costs of this podcast are solely covered by you, the audience. So thank you to everyone who does that, and if you'd like to support it, you can do so at patreon.com stroke political philosophy podcast. Apart from that, sharing the episodes on social media is also a great way of helping get these conversations out there. That's about it. So yeah, hopefully you will join us again next week for my conversation with Peter Singer, which I'm excited to bring you. And yeah, thanks again for listening. Until then. (laughs) 